0: This morning's uh, reading is from Titus. It's uh, chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Good morning, everyone. And welcome. For those of you who might be here visiting with us, we're glad to have you. And for those who might be joining us at home, watching. Last week we talked about baptism. We, we talked about what baptism is not. And what we'd like to do this week is talk about what baptism is. What's its purpose? The importance of baptism for us today. And so there's a lot of confusion today about baptism and its role in Christianity. And many people have heard of baptism but don't know much about it, what, what it's for, why it should be done. So we will be exploring these things today, and hopefully it will clear up any confusion that you might have on the issue and the importance of baptism in God's plan for us, his forgiveness for us, and bringing us into a right relationship with him. So first of all, and I don't have the scripture reading up there, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5 tells us, that there is only one baptism. And that means that there's only one baptism that is authorized by God, one that we are to observe today. And so if there's only one, then it's very important for us to understand it, to know what that is. So let's start off by taking a look at what baptism is. Take a look at the first point. And the first point is that baptism is the beginning of a new birth and a new life. We just heard from the reading a minute ago, and you read it, the baptism of renewal and and regeneration. So we know that it's a new birth. We know it's a new life. And so let's take a look at John chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. And in these verses, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, Nicodemus being one of the Jewish leaders. And he approaches Jesus at night. And he's curious. He has questions for Jesus. He wants to know more. And so he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. And so we start in verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. There has to be a new birth. We have to be born again. And baptism is at that point when that happens. And so take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because to go with this point, we're going to see something in this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Listen to what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. It's a new birth. A new creation. Have you ever thought of yourself as a new creature in the eyes of God? A completely different creation altogether. We know that when we think of the Old Testament. We think of Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. We see the days of creation. We understand that God has created man. And so we understand that there is a physical birth here, that that God has created us. And then after that, we know that we have babies. We we have physical births. But we're talking about a spiritual birth here, a new creation. You've you've already been created by God, but you become something completely different, a new creation. And then, of course, we mentioned the reading a moment ago. And so, the beginning of a new birth and a new life. Point number two, what baptism is. It is a death and a burial. It is a death and a burial. And so you might think, well, what do you mean a death and a burial? You you just talked about new life. Why are you talking about a death now? Because in order for new life to come, there has to be a death. You have to die to the old and rise to new life, to the new. And so take a look, if you will, in Romans chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 to 4. Notice what Paul says, and this is after people have been baptized and they continue to sin, and Paul's getting after them telling them, you can't do that. So he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We put the old aside and we put on the new. We experience a death, a death to sin. We put death to sin in the water. Uh, You almost picture uh, pushing the sin down. No, you're going to stay there because we're going to die to sin. We're going to leave you right there. And you come up new, new life, new birth, new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. A new life begins at that point. It's a death. It is a burial. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 9 to 13. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. Notice the words that are being used, having been buried with Christ in baptism. You're reenacting that death and burial of Christ. You're dying with Christ, and you're being raised to new life. And in that same book, Colossians chapter 3, look at verses 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. This is talking about someone who has gone through baptism. You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Notice the language, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then also, you also will appear with him in glory. So a, l- a new life that you live in Christ, that is hidden in Christ. We always think of that song, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. What, what is that song talking about? It's talking about this death and burial that you've gone through. You've been crucified with Christ. So it is a death and a burial. Point number three. Baptism is the point at which you are forgiven of sins. It is part of the salvation process. It is at that point that you're forgiven, not before that. And that's important. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 2 for our text. And we read about how it said, Repent to be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. But notice what Peter said in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So he preached a message of getting away from the corruption of the world, coming to Christ, being forgiven. And it says that those who accepted his message were baptized. So we understand that baptism is that final step in the process, at which point you come into contact with the blood of Christ through that death and burial, and you're forgiven. Of your sins. And it's important for us to understand that. And then another verse for this point Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Listen to these verses. He said to them, referring to Jesus, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. What does it mean to you when I say the word saved? Can we change that word with forgiven? Is it the same thing? Isn't being saved mean? Doesn't that mean that you are forgiven of your sins? That's salvation. Forgiven of your sins and in a right relationship with God. So it is the the point at which you are forgiven of sins, it is part of the salvation process. Point number four. Baptism is the point at which you are in Christ, that you are united with Christ, united with Christ. This is an important point. It is not until this point that we are actually with Christ in union with him. Take a look, if you will, at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what it says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. If any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, united with Christ. That happens at that point, at the point of baptism. That uniting happens. That death, that burial, being crucified with Christ, you are united with Christ at that point. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we read there a while ago, and we read these verses. And I will turn there and just quickly read it again. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, about being raised with Christ. We read that for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, well, you've been united with Christ. Christ is now your life. We've joined with him. We talked about Romans 6, 1 to 4. We've touched on it there. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Take a look at that verse, if you will. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are united with Christ. And take a look in that same chapter, verses 9 and 10. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. There's a uniting that happens at that point of baptism. And then finally, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. Read with me if you will. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ So, picture putting on clothing. Picture putting on a sweater, a shirt. Clothing yourself with Christ. We've been united with Christ. It's a joining with our Lord. And so, I want to cover this last point. This is point number five and the final point of what baptism is. Baptism is part of a purification process. God makes us pure, God takes away the sin. And we are pure in the sight of God. In the Old Testament, and I've got a few passages there, we're not going to read those. But under the Old Old Testament, everything had to be purified before the presence of God could come and dwell. The tabernacle, everything that had to be used in the tabernacle, everything. Even the priests that would come and minister in the tabernacle had to be purified before the presence of God would come and dwell there and so everything was to be washed purified for sacred use the temple and everything in it and even Aaron and those who would serve also had to be purified so take a look if you will at 1st peter chapter 1 and with this idea in mind think about we come to the new testament we think about this purification so 1st peter chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 and notice what it says in these verses Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. We talked about being born again. We know what we're talking about here. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. It is a purification. We are purified. We are purified the sins taken away so that the presence of God can come and dwell in us. Just like it did in the Old Testament. Everything was purified, the presence of God would come and dwell. So we are purified. Sins taken away, the presence of God comes and dwells in us. And this is something that often isn't talked about when we talk about baptism. And then in Titus chapter two. Read with me if you will, and notice what it says in that verse. Or verses Titus chapter two, verses eleven to fourteen. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He has purified us. We've been purified by the blood of Christ. And so we must be purified, sins removed, before the presence of God can come and dwell in us. And before we can serve God in true holiness and righteousness. And so now I want to look at another account of purification. This is the text that I've chosen for this morning. And this is 2 Kings chapter 5. If you will turn there, we're going to read a good section of that of that particular chapter, in 2 Kings chapter 5, and then I'll get to the point after that, and hopefully things will be clear for you. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 14, and follow along with me if you will. So now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So we read about this guy. He's a, he's a great soldier. He has leprosy. I don't know how he manages as a soldier with leprosy, but he does. And he does well. He was a great soldier. Verse 2. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. So for some reason, they're sending a letter to this king of Israel thinking that maybe he's got something to do with it but the girl said the prophet in Samaria she didn't say the king so as soon as the king of Israel read the letter he tore his robes and said am I God can I kill and bring back to life why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me so he gets the wrong idea When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. So notice, here is Naaman. He's a great man. And here's Elisha. He sends his servant. He doesn't even go to the door himself. He sends his servant to answer the door to try to help him to understand that he needs to be a little more humble. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all any of the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned away and went off in a rage. Now, if you've ever had looked at pictures of the Jordan River, it's pretty dirty. It's brown. It's not so nice. But for some reason, he thinks these two rivers are beautiful. They're so nice. Why couldn't he tell me to go and wash in one of those two rivers? Well, for, there's a couple of different reasons, possible reasons. You know, these rivers are back in his own home country. So maybe there's a humbling aspect here. No, you're not going to go back home in your comfort zone, in your comfort level, what you're already used to. You're going to do it somewhere where you're not used to, a place that you're not used to, that you're not familiar with. So that could be one reason. There's, there's lots of different reasons why. So Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. (coughs) The Hebrew word for dipped could have also been translated as plunged. So he plunged himself under the water. We should not think that Naaman just went down there and dipped his toes in the water. Obviously, he did more than that. He plunged himself in the water. He dipped his whole body, which implies he dunked his whole body under the water. Now, Naaman humbled himself and was obedient to Elisha's instructions. He was obedient to what God said to him through Elisha. He was told by Elisha to go to the Jordan River, wash himself seven times. And so we see the very specific instructions. And there's a reason why I'm saying this. If Naaman had gone to one of those two rivers that he mentioned, would he have been cleansed of his leprosy? Obviously not, right? He was told which river to go to. If he had sprinkled water all over himself instead of plunging under the water, would that have been okay with God? Would he have been cured? No. If he had washed five times, six times instead of seven, would he have been cleansed of his leprosy? Well, obviously, no. He was told, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. He was given specific instructions. Specific instructions. What we saw was a test of faith. If Naaman had done things different in any way, God's power would not have been present. That's the point I want to make. If he had done anything different, God's power would not have been present and it wouldn't have happened. He would not have been cured of his leprosy. He would not have been purified. And so, with that in mind, in the same way God has told us what we must do to receive his forgiveness, to be purified of our sins so that the presence of God can dwell in us. It's very specific instructions. But baptism is part of that process, and it can't be disregarded. Some people reject baptism, and they'll say that you're trying to earn your salvation. Well, that's just not true. It is simply not true. God does the saving. We all know that. It's not us, but he tells us how he's going to do it, the process by which he's going to save us, and baptism is part of that process. Baptism is from God, it's not from man. It's important that we remember that. I want to finish by reading the text that we had last week, which is Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41. And Peter is talking to the Jews, 3,000 Jews, on the day of Pentecost. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So we see what they were told to do and how to do it. If you are here today, if you have not been baptized, as part of that plan of salvation, as part of that plan to forgive you of your sins and to put you in a right relationship with God, won't you do that at this time as we sing our closing song.